Welcome to Warrior's Day Off, a podcast where we will share stories of life's unexpected struggles and conversations about the many faces of courage, strength, hope, and survival. So it's with an open heart, an open mind, and without judgment that we begin this experience together. I'm Jennifer Eby. Everyone has a story, and each is unique to their personal circumstances. At Warrior's Day Off, we are simply a place where guests and listeners can take a break from society's expectations or definition of what strong looks like, sounds like, and feels like. It's not our intention to provide medical or legal advice, nor to suggest that any one way is the right way. I'm inspired by these stories. Perhaps you will be too. Today's episode is part of a Hall of Fame series sponsored by Eternal Health, a woman-owned, run, and built Medicare Advantage health plan currently available to Massachusetts residents in Suffolk, Worcester, and Middlesex counties. As your hometown Medicare Advantage plan, they are a proud sponsor of the Boston Red Sox and the presenting sponsor for the David Ortiz Hall of Fame Day at Fenway Park. In celebration of David being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, Eternal Health is sponsoring the Warriors Day Off Hall of Fame series, beginning with today's interview featuring Massachusetts legend Bobby Gibb. Bobby is the first woman ever to run and complete the Boston Marathon in 1966, at a time when it was believed that women were not physically able to run marathon distances and were not allowed to compete in events longer than one and a half miles. She finished with the top third of runners in three hours, 21 minutes, and 40 seconds. Bobby ran it again in 1967 and in 1968. On the 30th anniversary of her first run and the 100th anniversary of the Boston Marathon, she was awarded a medal for her three wins, and her name was inscribed with the other winners on the Boston Marathon Memorial in Copley Square. She was inducted into the Road Runners of America Hall of Fame in 1982, and in 2011, she was inducted into the TD Garden Sports Hall of Fame in Boston. In addition to being a trailblazer, Bobby is a modern Renaissance woman in her intellect, pursuit of knowledge, interests, talent, and accomplishments. There are many layers to Bobby, a depth she humbly reveals in her book, Wind in the Fire, a soulful mindfulness, an inspiring zest for life and natural curiosity that shows up in the many hats she wears, artist, mother, attorney, athlete, author, speaker, and the list keeps growing. Hers is a life spent in pursuit of itself in its fullest potential. Bobby, welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Can we start talking about the marathon runner part? Um, I know you began running through the woods as a child to explore nature. When did that become a passion with a greater sense of purpose? Um, yes, you're right. I started running when I, when I could walk and I love to run through the woods with the neighborhood dogs. And I saw the Boston Marathon for the first time in 1964. My dad and I went out uh, to see it and I saw these runners running. I couldn't believe 26.2 miles and I fell in love with it. There was something about the strength and courage 
of these runners. It was something so basically human uh, about this race that I just fell in love with it. And some internal decision was made. It wasn't even rational. There was no money involved. I had never heard of the Boston Athletic Association. I had no idea what the uh, Amateur Athletic Union was. I just thought it was a bunch of guys who ran from Hopkinton to Boston on Patriots Day. But there's something inside of me just decided that this was somehow what I was supposed to do, even though it was way, way, way far outside the social norm, even for a woman, a grown woman to be running in those days. So I just fell in love with it in 1964 and I started training. I had no books, no coach, no idea how to train, but that, that was the, that was when I really set a goal and started working towards that goal. Every single day I ran. Yeah. I mean, take us back to that time a little bit, because you, you talked about how uh, women were not allowed to compete uh, and it wasn't really the social norm that even grown women were out running in the streets or in the parks or wherever. And they're also, you didn't have running shoes or a coach or take, take us back a little bit to that time. So some of the younger listeners can get a full picture of what that was like. It's really hard for young women today to understand what it was like in the 50s and 60s, growing up in the 50s, 60s, uh, as a woman, it was uh, like living in a little box. And I, I knew as I was in adolescence and I approached womanhood, I could see what was coming down the road. It was like being in this little prison. I could see my mother, how unhappy she was, intelligent, beautiful woman. And she had had to give up her dreams, like all the women virtually in those days, give up her dreams to be a housewife. And I did want children, and I wanted to be married and 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 have a home. But I also wanted to be myself and to develop the potential that I had. And I looked around and I saw all all these women suffering in a middle class existence where I grew up in Winchester, Mass. And I thought, I can't live like this. And I didn't know how to change it. I know I wanted to change it, but I didn't know how. But I, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't uh, submit to those social norms in those days. I was looking for something deeper, some spiritual connection to nature and some creative way of living. I always felt, wow, this is amazing. You're born onto this planet, this little planet revolving around a star in a universe. And I mean, why and how is it here? And I was curious about everything. Like the more I learned about science, the more amazed I was at the miracle of existence, miracle of existence. Like, I mean, I learned about atoms and molecules. I mean, just to create one molecule, one atom is so amazing. So my mind was just blown away by the whole experience of being alive on planet earth and i wanted to experience that as fully as i could and this was completely outside the norm for a woman in those days so uh it it was a long hard struggle but i was way outside the social norm and running i got a feel of freedom I was free. I was running in the woods with the dogs. I was harking back to maybe something like uh, the Greek goddess Artemis running through the woods with her hunting dogs and this, this sense of freedom and autonomy that I wanted all women to share. 
actually all people this year because there are a lot of men in this world who are living lives they don't want to lead. You had to get in shape to run 26.2 miles. How, how did you do that? Well, I didn't know how. So I thought, well, I'll just run further every day. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> I after, after about a week of running further every day, I was so tired, I had to drop back. But I did run. I ran every day. And I would just try gradually to increase my mileage. Not, I wouldn't try to do it every day. I'd, I'd like run a mile and then I'd run a mile for a couple of days and then I'd try to run a mile and a quarter and a mile and a half and so forth and build up that way. And I have no idea if I could do it, if my body could do it. Of course, we were told we were the weaker sex in those days. We were looked at as uh, weaker and uh, irrational, not, not capable of really rational thought. A lot of people thought this. They had a very low uh, view of women, in, and it, it really was difficult to overcome that and to say, well, can I really do this? Can I really physically do this? But every day, will my heart keep beating, you know, and so, but I try every day, I was going into the unknown, pushing a little further and a little further, and, uh, and mostly, first of all, in the woods, and then, as you know, in the summer of 1964, I took a trip across the country on, in a VW van with my Malamu puppy, and I loved to camp out, I had been quite a good camper uh, in, in my adolescent years, and so I would camp out at night, and I fall asleep looking up at the stars. And then during the day, I would run in a different place. I was in love with this country. I still am in love with this country, with the land and the people and the whole idea of democracy and freedom. And how, I mean, I think that democracy is the evolutionary cutting edge of human societies. We're moving toward that. And so I... I just love this country. I wanted to see it. I want to meet the people who make this country so wonderful. And so I set off across the country. And that was my major training for the Boston Marathon. I took all summer uh, that summer. And um, by the time I got to the Rocky Mountains, I was running, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 miles at a time up over the mountains. So it was a good way to train. It's amazing. I mean, I grew up in New England and, you know, that forest, the deciduous forest. And then, of course, that goes all the way out to the Midwest and the farms, such rich, rich farmland and such abundance we have here. And, the, and I love going to the little coffee shops and truck stops along the way. And I listen to the farmers talk about their crops. And the, my grandmother, of course, she was. She came from a pioneer family, and they'd gone out by covered wagon and made a farm in Ohio. And uh, she used to say, "Corn knee high by the Fourth of July." And so here it was, July, and I was going off across the country. And this, I got across the Mississippi River. It was amazing. And then I had never seen the Great Plains, and it was so beautiful—miles and miles and miles of farmland and grass and cattle and uh, it just it just blew my mind it, the entire continent and then you were doing this wearing nursing shoes is that what you right. were yeah 
nurse issues. Well, I worked as a nurse's aide my first job out of high school. And um, nurse issues were the only sturdy shoes for women that I could find. Most of the shoes for women had little pointy toes and they were very flimsy. And here are these nurse's shoes. They're made out of leather and they have these great non-skid soles on them. And they were perfect for running, actually, cross-country. Uh, rough terrain, rocks, and so forth. And so I actually loved my nurse's shoes for running. <laughs> Somebody had recommended you get a pair of men's running shoes right before the marathon, and you didn't even get a chance to break them in or anything. No, I didn't even know you're supposed to break them in. They didn't fit right. And uh, they gave me horrible blisters. It was so frustrating. I wish I had worn my nurse's shoes because I was on a sub-three-hour pace for most of the marathon. And then the last few miles, the blisters broke through and I had bleeding blisters. And every step was agony. It was just so painful. And I took my shoes off actually and was running barefoot for a while. And then the bottoms of my feet hurt and I put my shoes back on again. And I just said, well, I I have to finish this race because well, I'll get to that in the story. But I, I knew I had a huge responsibility because I was trying to show that women could do what, what, what everyone thought was impossible. And I figured once they know that a woman can run these distances and run it well, they'll open up the race. And more than that, um, but I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I'll say it anyway. Um, when I wrote for my application, and I didn't disguise my uh, my gender and I, or change my name or anything, and so they knew I was a woman. and I got a, a letter back from Will Cloney. I was in California at that time. Got a letter back. It said, uh, women are not physiologically able to run 26-mile uh, marathon. And furthermore, uh, the longest race for a woman is a mile and a half. And furthermore, the Boston Marathon is a men's division race for which women are not qualified. And he didn't say this at the time, but I found out later if uh, if there's an unqualified runner in a race, that race could lose its amateur athletic union accreditation and the race could be closed down. So, um, of course, he wanted to keep unqualified runners, which a woman would be as a man would be unqualified to run a women's division race. But so he was very sticky on this point that uh that a, it was a men's division race. So I actually was running in the first ever women's division race, which was not yet, yet accredited, but was later called the pioneer women's division race for all of us who ran before 1972, when finally, finally, thanks to the work of Mina Kusick, there was an accredited women's division race in Boston because the AAU finally started to accredit women's marathons. But at the time, in 1966, it was a completely different story. Were you surprised that you were turned down? Yeah, I was doubly surprised because um, I met uh, a runner from the San Diego track and um, field uh, group after I had just finished a 25 mile run uh, down along, <laughs> in fact, it was quite an adventure. <laughs> and uh, I had run uh, 25 miles 
And I got back and I ran into this um, really nice guy, Bill Gukin, in Balboa Park, which is a beautiful park there in San Diego. And he said, well, I thought I knew all the runners. And, and I said, well, I had just come from Boston. And I told him I was going to run the Boston Marathon. And he said, well, you've got to have a number. That was the first time I'd even thought about it. About I mean, how do you... And you know, how do I get a number? Well, you write to the Boston Athletic Association. Well, what's that? Well, they put on the race. And so that's when I learned that I had to get a number. And so I, you know, I wrote and then I got this letter back. And here it was again. It was just, it, this is what you ran into as a woman. You were in this little tiny box. And the minute you tried to move out in any direction, apply to medical school. Sorry, we don't take women. Why don't you know, uh, we need to save the place for men who will actually practice medicine. You're too pretty. You're actually going to uh, obviously get married and and uh, not practice medicine. So, I mean, this was, you couldn't be a lawyer. You couldn't even have a credit card in your name. if you were, Your husband had to sign for it and mortgage was out of the question. Buy a house. No, you couldn't get, you couldn't even get a good paying job in a, if to have a career. Career women were looked at as oddities in those days. And so here it was here it was in my face. You can't run the Boston Marathon because A, we don't, <laughs> you know, we don't think that you can do it. And so here is the whole tragedy of prejudice. If you belong to a certain group of people, and it's not just women, there are a lot of prejudices in this world. And one of my mottos is inspire with truth. And I think the truth will set you free. And so here it was again, mind-bending, mind-binding, boggling, you can't do. And here I trained for this thing now for two years. And so I crumpled the letter up. And it was the same feeling of this mixture of sadness and anger that I'd felt for so many years. And so many women felt like this, sadness and anger. I crumbled up the letter, I threw it in, on the floor, and I started to run. And I just, I went out of the door and I started to run. I ran 20 miles north up to Del Mar. I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I just, that was it. I ran all the way up to Del Mar. By now it was getting dark. People were out having cookouts with their kids running around, swimming and so forth, this beautiful beach in Del Mar. And so I wandered around like I must have looked hungry because people kept offering me food. <laughs> They're so generous out there. I mean, so friendly and generous. And I get talking with people and they give me a hot dog or something and some soda pop. And finally, uh, everybody else packed up and went home. And there I was in Belmar. And I, I actually slept on the beach that night. I slept on the beach and um, uh, with the sound of the surf, that long surf coming crash thundering and crash like for some always nature has been my solace and i would return to nature and partly i think it reminded me of my grandmother who loved nature and had beautiful gardens when i was growing up but partly it was because when you get down when you get back to nature you're at something such a basic level the universe and i look up at night and i see the stars and the universe and i think wow the atoms in our bodies come from these stars and we're part of this. We are part of the universe. And so it was a comforting feeling to be there lying on the sand and listening to the waves and looking up 
into the uh, yeah out, I would say out into the universe. And then I fell asleep. And in the morning, I woke up. And I and that's, this was the pivotal moment. I said, this is all the more important now for me to run this race. There was no way I was not going to run this race. Now, I I had a chance to change social consciousness about women because I figured if I could prove this misconception about women wrong, then it would throw into question all the other false beliefs about women that have been used literally for centuries to keep women basically subjugated and entrapped economically and politically and personally trapped. How, how can you know you didn't do something if you're never allowed to do it? No, I mean, that's the tragedy of prejudice. And here it was in my face. So now I'm going to break through this. Now, suddenly my running had a social significance that went way beyond just my own personal challenge and satisfaction. So that, that was a pivotal moment for me there. So at that point you decided, I'm going to run this. I'm going to run the marathon, even though they said I can't. And I'm going to show people. I'm going to, I'm going to demonstrate the truth. The way people thought about women was insidious in those days. And uh, women were the, they were called the weaker sex. And they were thought to be uh, incapable of, of, this is one reason that I went into science, besides the fact that I love science, and my dad was a scientist, and um, was, uh, I wanted to show that women could do these things. So how can you, you know, you can demonstrate all you want, but until, and complain, but until you actually can prove you can do this stuff, nobody will believe you. So I took it upon myself to to prove that women could do stuff like that, to be scientists, to study math, to run marathons and all this stuff. we're, We're whole people and we each... Each, I really think that each individual, each person in this world is valuable. And we all came with a special gift to give the world. And when prejudice blocks out so much for so many people around the world, we're losing a huge percentage of our human potential here on Earth through these, these false beliefs and these prejudices that's still true around the world. That uh, you know the, the the these kinds of false beliefs are are preventing us from from enjoying the benefit of the gifts that people have to give. When you were running and surprising people all over the country with your running long distances, you have a few stories that I was wondering if you would share. I know one of them was the Woodstock horse. 100-mile horse event, uh, and then also, also when you were back in California and mistakenly crossed into Mexico. So would you tell us some of those stories? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the first one happened in, 19, in the winter of 1966. I went out to California, and uh, I was still training for the Boston Marathon. And I thought, well, I'll explore my uh, surrounding, my new surroundings. So I took a ferry over to Coronado Island and I ran down the Silver Strand Beach, which is so beautiful. And I was, I was looking at the sunlight dancing on the water 
and the and the white sand and you know I was just lost in this. To me, running is kind of a spiritual experience, and uh, I'm running along and running and running and not no, I didn't have a watch. I had no idea how far I had gone, and I kept on running and I waded through an estuary, and I kept on running and running south and running south, and it was low tide. And I got in a some after a while, it was getting kind of late later in the afternoon. And I was thinking, well, maybe I better head home. And it felt different. It started to feel different. This is, something felt different about this place. And so I turned around and I started running back. I ran back. And now the tide had come in and I was closer up. And there was some coils of barbed wire up near the, up by that high tide line. And I get to the coils, and suddenly, I, I this uh, <laughs> the the United States Border Patrol came wheeling out and um, blinking <laughs> and honking and stop, stop, and um, you're about to enter the, the United States. And I said, I thought I was in the United States because I, I wasn't used to living near international borders. So they were. They couldn't figure out what I was doing. They well, where where are you coming from? And I said, well, San Diego. And I ran down Silver Strand and so forth. And you ran all this way. They couldn't believe that a woman, sort of a ragamuffin-looking woman, was out running these kind kind of distances. And so uh, they took me to their headquarters, and they said, well, and I said, well, I re- recently married a Navy man, which is true. That's why I was in San Diego. In fact. He was the guy I, I started running cross country with at Tufts, but that that's another story. Anyway, so there I was, and I said, "Well, no, I, I gave him my address and my name. Well, is there anyone who can verify your story?" So, my uncle had been friends was friends with uh, Ewing Mitchell, and so I had been st- I had been staying before I was married. I stayed with Ewing Mitchell and his family up in Rancho Santa Fe. And Ewing Mitchell was one of the lead actors, actors in a very popular TV series then Sky King. And so they looked at me like, yeah, sure, Ewing Mitchell, right, yeah. And, and they said, well, what's his phone number? So I said, well, it's, it's, this is, I gave him his phone number. And they called Ewing Mitchell. And luckily, he was home, and he came to the phone. And they talked for a while. And I guess he must have said I was okay because... They came back and they were all smiling and very apologetic and um, yeah, everything's fine. So they actually drove me up into San Diego and let me loose again. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, <laughs> that was fine. They were nice guys, but they were just doing their job, you know? Yeah. And then there was another time, I think you ran into some border patrol when you were hiking or, or running oh, a mountain. Yeah. Oh, okay, mountain. Well. You know, I had this way of following my heart, and um, I, when I first went out to San Diego, I was staying at the El Cortez Hotel before I was married. That's, um, and I, I um, looked out. There was a, a a glass elevator that went up the outside of this hotel, and then there was also uh, a dining area at the top of the at the hotel and so I could see from from this perspective this beautiful mountain it looked like a volcano to the south 
little bit to the southeast. And I and I said, wow, that is a beautiful mountain. I'd like to run to the top of that mountain, I'm thinking to myself. And so uh, one day I decided, well, I will run to the top of that mountain. So after a muffin and a cup of coffee at a local cafe, I took a bus down to San Ysidro and I, and I headed out, headed east. And all these adorable little children came out. They were so interested that I was running by. <laughs> I'd say hi to them all. And I went out and I ran and ran, to, uh, ran. I spent a long time running up this mountain. And I, kept, I noticed there was this rich area on the desert. And I thought to myself, why would anyone out in the world rake out here in this desolate desert? But I ran and, and I love the smell of the sagebrush and the wild lilacs. And I was just, oh, it was in heaven. It was a hot day, but I ran. I, and then I clambered up the mountain. I get to the top of the mountain. And I look, I look back and I can see the Pacific Ocean, I don't know, maybe 15 miles to the west, shimmering in the, in the afternoon sun. And then I'm jumping down from ledge to ledge to come back. And for no reason, absolutely no reason, I had no, no idea why I stopped. I stopped on a ledge. I was just about to jump down to the next ledge and some pebbles fell down. And all of a sudden the rattlesnake coiled and it started making that ticking sound, that rattle sound and I said oh thank you my higher angels <laughs> thank you <laughs> whatever stopped me on that mountain and I very discreetly backed up and, and went made a wide berth around and I said hey, okay Mr. Snake you know you were here about 200 million years before we humans appeared so <laughs> I guess this is your mountain and I I, uh, and I ran on down and then I see this little sort of funnel of dust in the distance. I thought, that, that looks like a, some kind of little tornado or cyclone or something, but the, not, not windy. And then, well, it, it turned out it was a Jeep and a Jeep come up and two, two uh, border guards with rifles jump out of the Jeep. And they, and they said, we've been tracking you for 15 miles. And we thought, we thought you were uh, had crossed the border illegally, and I said no, <laughs> no, I, I, I just running out to see this beautiful mountain. <laughs> I was scratching their heads, like, uh, and they had they they couldn't fathom that a woman had had run 15 miles like this in the desert, but uh, but uh, they smiled and you know they asked me if I'd like a ride back, and I said yeah, actually I would like a ride back. So they, they drove me back to San Ysidro. And again, <laughs> border guard is having a habit of <laughs> picking me up and driving me back to San Diego, let me out. And, and, I, and I ran on home from there. And would you tell the story also in Woodstock with the horses? Oh, Woodstock, Hundred Well, when I was growing up, I went to a horseback camp up in Vermont. I loved horses. I think I rode my first horse when I was four years old, and I just loved horses. And so um, when I was a camper, we had gone down to look, We a bunch of us went down to see the, the Woodstock 100 Mile, which is a 100-mile equestrian event in Woodstock, Vermont, 40 miles the first day, 40 miles the second day, and 20 miles the third day. And so... Um, and this was in the fall of 1965. 
and I had pretty much completed my training um, for the Boston Marathon. I was going to run the marathon, by the way, in April of 1965, but I fell in some ice and sprained both ankles, but that's a whole nother story. So I had another year that I had to hold my training. And and so I figured here it was the fall of 1960. Let's see, I've never really run a measured course before. And here is a measured course laid out with little dots that you can follow on the trees and horses. And you can, you, so I have, I can, I can really see if I can run. So I wanted to see if I could run at least 26.2 miles of this race. And I was kind of curious to see if I could run all 40. So I set out in the morning uh, with the first horses and I ran oh, maybe six hours a day up and down old logging roads and across fields. It was beautiful country, green mountains. It was just beautiful. I ran all day. And uh, then I was coming back down into South Woodstock. And, and there were people along the way, they're clapping. And they go, one guy said, did you run the whole way? And I said, yes. And he said, how did you feel? And I said, hungry. So he, he handed me a carrot. So I was munching on a carrot as I was coming back down after this 40-mile run. And um, then the next day, I went out again. And I ran about 25 miles, but my knees were hurting me. And I thought, you know, I don't really, I don't, I don't want to injure myself. To if I injure myself, then I won't be able to run the Boston Marathon. So after 25 miles, I pulled up and I hitchhiked back to the barn. And um, then I took a bus back to Boston and Winchester. But yeah, that, that was a neat, that was a neat experience. Yeah. The, I, I also found uh, what's so different than what we're accustomed to, even today, is you would run from Winchester, where you lived, into Boston to go to school, which was, right. what was it, like eight miles every day, yeah. that you, or you would go to class, and instead of taking a bus or driving, you would run. Right, 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 right. Well, I, 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 had, I was studying at Tufts. University, and that's where I was taking the biology and the science and the physics and the math and all that. But then um, I, I transferred into the, the Museum of Fine Arts. Boston Museum of Fine Arts has a school, and it's affiliated with Tufts University. And I had been doing the night classes there, and I transferred into the day classes because I wanted to focus on sculpture. And so, yeah, I would, I would run from Winchester. It was a nice run down along the lakes and in and over the hill and down along the Charles River and into the Fenway. So a little bit of city and a little bit of, uh, you know, river bank. And, and I'd run into to, uh, to school in the morning. Sometimes I'd run back in the evening, and, but sometimes it would be late and I'd want to get home and I'd take, uh, I'd take the tea. Uh, out to, and then take a bus to Winchester. So let's go to the day of the marathon. Well, you traveled from California back to Boston for the marathon. Will you take right. us to that moment? Okay. Well, as I said, I'd gotten that letter and then I, um, I knew that I had to, I mean, I was traveling by bus. So 
uh, the day of the marathon was fast approaching. And I figured, well, I better, you know, if I don't go now, I'm going to miss, the, I'm going to actually miss the marathon. So I got a, um, I, 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 I didn't live far from downtown San Diego. So I was able to walk or run down to the bus station. I bought a bus ticket. And then uh, taking my friend Bill's advice, I said, well, I got these shoes. I guess they're too heavy to run a marathon and I better get some boys light. They're very light shoes with very thin soles and they're very, uh, but they were boys. And so I went looking for a shoe store and I found a shoe store and there was this, this really nice, is this big, huge African-American man. And he was just glowing with happiness somehow. And I told him that I wanted some boys running shoes and he and he said why is a you know a pretty girl like you if I may ask uh, want boys running shoes and I said well I'm going to run the Boston Marathon but they don't allow women to run but I think having these lighter shoes will help me run better and so uh, he got he got the shoes for me tried on a couple of pairs and found the right shoes and and then he said, well, is it, is it, is it a civil rights thing? Because remember back in the 60s, there was all the civil rights uh, demonstrations and there was the uh, Vietnam War was going on, all this anti-war demonstrations and so forth. So it was a very tumultuous time. So I said, yeah, it's kind of a civil rights thing um, because the women's movement hadn't started yet, but the civil rights movement was already in, in full swing. So, uh, so <laughs> I stood up and he gave me a great big hug and he said, uh, he said something, I'll, I'll be praying for you, he says. And I mean, that was such a positive, it's such a positive encounter. And of course, on the bus, I met an, another African-American, a wonderful woman. I mean, he was, she's a very large woman and I was sitting behind the driver. Uh, and she came in and she said, well, do you mind if I sit down next to you? And I said, no, of course not. No, sit down. And so I, I scrunched over and so she could, she could sit next to me. And uh, we got talking about the civil rights. And I told her that I was going to run the Boston. I, didn't, I hadn't told many people because I hadn't told my parents I was going to run the Boston Marathon because I knew they'd try to stop me. And the uh, only people that knew were my boyfriend, John, and my good friend, Gail, knew. But so here are these people, and I'm here, so I'm talking, and yeah, I told her I'm going to run the Boston Marathon, but they don't allow women. And so she's going, not a go, girly. And she says, Watts is going to burn again. It have been the Watts riots after the Voting Act had been passed. I mean, so um, the Watts riots had happened. She said, Watts is going to burn again until all people are equal. She's going on she she's great so we had this great conversation and then at night I fell asleep I fell asleep against the window in the middle of the night I felt something warm being put over me and I woke up and she'd put her coat over me she'd taken off her coat and put it over me because it was cold on the bus going through the desert and over the mountains and uh and I looked over and I just felt this love somehow between us and it just, it just shows what I'm saying, that it's not what group people belong to, it's who the person is that matters. 
And all these stupid lines we draw and these barriers we put up, it's like the Boston Marathon. I go there every year and there are people from all over the world, all religious persuasions, all political parties, all, you know, and we're all hugging each other and we just love each other. In the seventies, we used to have what we call love-ins <laughs> and we'd sit around, you know, we'd have big group meetings and we'd just sit there like feeling love for each other. And, and so that, that transcends all these stupid boundaries that we put up against each other. It's who you are as a person that matters, not what group you belong to. And if the world could come to this consciousness, I think it would solve a lot of, a lot of the unnecessary problems that we have in the world today. Agreed. So you spent three days on the bus. Yeah. And the next day you're running. <laughs> the next day, I get there in Boston, and I call my parents from St. James. Oh, hi, Mom, hi, Dad. Uh, hi, Bobby Lou. That was my nickname, Bobby Lou, short for Roberta Louise. So everybody called me Bobby Lou when I was growing up. And where are you? I'm in Boston. Oh, what are you doing in Boston? I came to run the Boston Marathon. Dead silence. <laughs> I was like whispering on the other end of the forum. My my dad gets on and no, don't move. Just stay there, dear. We'll come and get you. I mean, they, they thought I'd gone around the bend, but I'd finally lost it. Uh, you know, here's this girl of theirs who runs in the woods with the dogs. They thought once I got married, everything would be fine. <laughs> but little did they know. So so they came and picked me up and you know I got and then my mother made this big roast beef dinner and apple pie and everything and they we didn't even talk about the Boston Marathon and then the next day my dad had to get to a sailing regatta at Tufts so he left early and but I convinced my mother and my mother had spent most of her adult life trying to get me to conform to the same deadening social norms that had made her so miserable and I said, but mom, don't you see this is going to help to set women free? I mean, you're not happy. And the women, women are just being imprisoned. It's, it's, they're being denied their, their civil rights. And, and, and I started talking. And finally, I, I, I got through to her and I could see she was moved um, by this. And she said, okay, get the keys. Get the keys. I'll, dri I'll drive you. And so we drove out in a... We drove out to the marathon along the marathon route because I had never seen the whole route, and so we went out. We didn't get. We didn't go all the way to Boston. I think we went to Wellesley. We drove out and talked, and and uh, and so I said, "Finally, you're on my side." And she said something like, uh, "It's something I should have done a long time ago." And. Um, then, so we got out to the outskirts of Hopkinton, and she let me out. We hugged for the first time in ages. I mean, since I could, since I was a kid, because she'd always been trying to get me to conform to these social norms, and I was always rebelling. And so finally, she was on my side. And interestingly, she went on then to go back to school and get her master's degree in sociology. I mean, this run really changed people's lives, men and women, and especially women, changed my mother's life too. And and so she dropped me off and I was wearing my brother's 
Bermuda shorts, as you know, and a blue hooded sweatshirt over uh, over a tank top bathing suit and my new running shoes. And I was running all around Hopkinton trying to figure out how I knew I knew I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do. And uh, I was trying to figure out how am I getting into the race? I, I thought maybe they'd arrest me or I knew if the officials saw me, they they'd try to keep me from running. And it was really important, quintessentially important that I run this race now, because now this is the way I was going to break through all this, uh, all these false beliefs and set women free. So I ran all around. I could see the men gathering in the, the pen and all the kids running around and balloon, you know, people buying balloons and popcorn. It was just like a celebration of spring. And I ran around and I found a little clump of bushes as close to the start as I could get. And then I went off behind some buildings and I ran up and down for about 40 minutes, um, warming up. I thought you had to warm up for then also after three days in the bus, I uh, warm up a little. And then as the time for the start came close, I got back to the bushes and I crouched there. So uh, in a way you could say that the, the, the first ever um, woman's Boston Marathon as yet unaccredited began <laughs> when my mother let, let me out of the car and I started running. It was a rather zigzag route. And then I got back to the bushes and then bang, the gun goes off. I wait till about half the pack leaves. And then I jump in and run with the men. Uh, and the men very quickly studying me from the rear realized I was a woman. I have to give them credit. And <laughs> so I want, I, I want it. I wanted to keep it upbeat and friendly because I wasn't trying to uh, run against the men or jeopardize their race or anything. I just, I wanted to show that men and women could do all of life together, that we can all be individuals. Like if a woman loves to drive trucks, she can drive trucks. If, it, if, a, if a man wants to knit doilies, he can knit doilies. If it doesn't make him any less of a man and woman. So they were so happy to see a woman running, I always say, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. They weren't at all against me and they were very supportive. And then when I wanted to take off the, the hooded sweatshirt, because it was a hot day, uh, they, I said, well, if, once they, if they see I'm a woman, they'll try to throw me out. And they said, we won't let them throw you out. It's a free road. So they were very protective. We talked together as we ran along. And then the press uh, could see I was a woman. And and then this guy, um, Jerry uh, Nason, he was a reporter. He was actually from Winchester, my hometown. And so he was calling ahead, as it turned out. He was calling ahead and saying, history in the making here. There's a woman running the race and the local, a local radio station started broadcasting my progress along the race. And again, I didn't know how the spectators were going to react because when you do something way far outside the social norm, sometimes people can be hostile. And so, but after a while, you know, so the guys started got out of go girly and the women were screaming and jumping up and down and crying and, you know, and so it was just this great, it was this great celebration. And then I got to Wellesley, which is about the halfway mark. Wellesley College is a woman's college there. In those days, they actually put their, they had two columns and they put their arms together and you'd have to duck down and run through the, through this tunnel. And 
uh, though they knew I was coming. And later on, I met Diana Chapman Walsh, who later became the president of Wellesley College. And she was a he, she was one of the students that was there. They knew I was coming because they were listening to the radio and they were wait, waiting and watching. And she said, we knew that things were never going to be the same after this. We knew this was going to change the world. And so they're watching. When they saw me, they let out this huge scream. And I ran by and, and I told this story before that there's this woman with children, you know, several children around her. And she's going, Ave Maria, Ave Maria. And there's tears coming down her eyes and there's tears coming down my eyes. And I, and I, I mean, it, that was a pivotal moment in like human consciousness, like, it was, we all knew at that moment, there was no going back, that this was really going to change the world, that we, we were never going to go back to the way it was. And in fact, it was like a pivotal moment there at Wellesley. And I ran on into Boston, as I say, on a sub three hour pace, running along, I, I was holding myself back. I was in really good shape, holding myself back because I didn't, I wanted to make sure I had enough to finish and finish well. But meanwhile, the blisters on my feet were getting worse. I go up over Heartbreak Hill, and that wasn't Heartbreak Hill. I mean, I've been walking, you know, going up and down over the Rocky Mountains and stuff. It, but uh, it wasn't that big a hill, really. And um, it's where it comes in the race, which is the race is mostly downhill. And by then, my blisters are really starting to hurt. And I go up, and I'm coming down the other side, you know, the fronts of my legs started to hurt, but mostly it's the blisters and they broke through. And then I would, as I say, I took my shoes off and I put them on again. Every, every step was excruciating pain and my pace dropped way, way off. And I was literally tiptoeing around and, and that was the end of my sub three hour marathon. But I, I began to wonder if anyone was to going to be at the finish when I got there. My pace was like that by this time so slow. I mean, like it would take me as long to go a mile as it had taken me to go eight miles or so. I mean, it was just really, really painful. And but I knew I couldn't stop. And so I, I kept on running and then I came down, turned on the Hereford Street. Everybody's hanging out the windows and drinking beer and cheering. We turn on to Boylston Street, and there's the finish line. And I go running down the final thing. By now, the press is all there, and, and the press truck is rolling, and so forth. And I go across the finish line, and uh, the applause was just deafening. It's like, wow, people are still here. And it turns out I finished ahead of two thirds of the pack, and the governor of Massachusetts came down and shook my hand. And then the, the next day, it was front page headlines, the first gal to run the Boston Marathon. And for about a decade, everybody got this, this story straight. And you know, it was, I was known as the matron saint of the Boston Marathon. And as you said, I came back the next year and ran again. And the next year, I ran again and finished first those years. But it really, it really did change the way people thought about women. And uh, it was, was just what I wanted to happen. Yeah, I mean, and if you think about when you were running in the subsequent ones, uh, there were maybe five other women who ran with you. And then in 2022, it was more than 12,000 women running yes. the Boston Marathon. How does that feel? That just that feels great. great. That's what I wanted to happen. I wanted, you know, I want 
I mean, this is a democracy. We, you know, we're, we're individuals. I want a society where individuals can maximize their potential. And, uh, and you know, these, uh, this hidden potential that women have had, and men too, have had, uh, needs to have the opportunity to be, to, to be maximized. So each, each person has the opportunity to become all that they're capable of becoming. Yeah. I, I want to get back to a couple of things that I want to include in this interview with you. Um, one is about 1984, you, your sculpture for the uh, Olympics. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Um, Laurel James is a remarkable woman. She lives in Washington and she she started, I think, one of the first, if not the first, store for um, runners. It was called Super Jock and Jill. And she sold running shoes and running stuff, maybe other sports too, I don't know. But Laurel was an amazing woman. And she had gotten a contract from the Olympic Organizing Committee to organize the first ever women's Olympic marathon trials and fittingly in Olympia, Washington, and her son uh, helped her, her son Brett, helped her uh, with, with this project. And so she contacted me and said that she would like three bronze sculptures to give out as the first three prizes for this. And so I made three bronze sculptures of Olympia, I call their Olympia running, and um, they were the prizes. And Joan Benoit won of course, that year, and she loves this sculpture. She keeps it with her. She she, she says it's the only sculpt, it's the only uh, trophy that she keeps out in her living room. And then for the fiftieth anniversary of women running the Boston Marathon, another dream of yours came true. Would you like to talk about that project? The twenty six point two foundation foundation in Hopkinton, where it all began, the beginning of the Boston Marathon, commissioned me to a, a life size bronze sculpture commemorating the pioneer division women runners, which, as I said, were all of us from 66 to 70, through 71. Sarah Mae Berman won it three times uh, in 69, 70, and 71. And I, I won it, I had won it three times, as we've said, 66, 67, 68. So, but there were a lot of other women that, that ran um, the, during that time, during that period of time, increasing numbers of women, just as I had wanted to happen. And um, so they commissioned me to do a life-size sculpture and I wanted to do one of Joan Benoit. And they said, no. Uh, and I said, well, how about uh, just a generic woman? No, we want you to do one of you. And I said, oh no, I can't do one of me. But okay, if we don't do one of you, we're not going to do it. Okay, 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 I'll do one of me. So I did one of me with my brother's Bermuda shorts on and the tank top bathing suit and, and the whole thing. And it was unveiled in October, this, this past October. And they're still working on the site. It's going to be put at the start of the Boston Marathon. But it was really fun. It was actually the first time I'd ever had a live model to sculpt from. <laughs> so it's so weird. I'm looking at my hand and oh yeah, that's <laughs> it. it was fun. So the, the next thing I want to ask you about is age does not define you. No. <laughs> you, you still run three to four times a week? 
Yep, at least. Yeah. And if I can't run, I do a trampoline inside. And Eternal Health has some upcoming community events planned to to support being fit and active. What health and wellness advice would you give men and women who want to stay fit and active? I love that eternal health. I mean, that is so, it's like partly because the eternal has evokes sort of a spiritual sense as well as a physical sense. And I think that component is really important. It's your state of mind is really important. Staying active, staying engaged, and uh, exercise is great, whatever exercise people like to do. Also, eating right is great. And not, not doing or ingesting things that are harmful to you is also important if you want to live a long and healthy life. And so you know, I'm really looking forward to meeting the people at Eternal Health. And I'm looking forward to all the events that you've got planned for me. (laughs) Wait, we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, they're looking forward to meeting you too. Is is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to share? Probably, but I'll probably (laughs) probably about one o'clock in the morning or something. (laughs) Oh, I should have said such and such. Very touched that you read my book. Well, there's there's so much I could continue to talk to you about, and I look forward to seeing you up in Boston so we can continue yeah. talking about all these different topics. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. I really have enjoyed this. I enjoy meeting you, and I'm looking forward to our continued uh, meetings and talks. Yeah, me too. Again, to learn more about Bobby Gibb and her artwork, visit bobbygibbart.net. If you're a Massachusetts resident living in Suffolk, Worcester, and Middlesex counties and want to learn more about your hometown Medicare Advantage plan, visit eternalhealth.com. Links to their websites will also be on warriorsdayoff.com. Thank you again, Bobby, for sharing your story with us and for all that you've done and continue to do to help others. I'll see you in Boston. Well, thanks. A special thanks to Eternal Health for making this podcast possible today and to the listeners out there. Thanks for giving me a chance and for your time. I find inspiring stories are all around. You just have to tune in. Thanks for joining us today at Warrior's Day Off. This is Jen Eby. You got this.